Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Rudy Beepish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 59th episode of the Not A Cast entitled... The Bridge Troll, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Catlin 9, in which we finally come face to face with the fandom's favorite family, the fantastic, fabulous, flawless phrase? Factually, though, the phrase are fickle and farcical and fanatically cruel, so fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck the phrase. But, you know, they are kind of a lot of fun here. To use another F word, fun. Fucking fun. This is <laughs> Gosh, this episode getting off to a great start. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council members on Patreon, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War in the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, and Lord James, the gym that was promised. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always, everybody. We recently passed $4,000 a month over on the Patreon and got Yay. our 700th uh, subscriber there. And that's just great. As we've said before, we're always so pleased and flattered and surprised that everyone's uh, so into what we're talking about here. And we're so excited to have you with us for what's coming up. Or as we've been saying, we're getting to some really exciting stuff in the final act of A Game of Thrones on into book two. So if you haven't checked that already, check out patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF, where you can get early releases and exclusive episodes, show notes, and more. Absolutely. And thank you so much, everyone, for your kind contributions and your kind listenership towards us. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, we'll be potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Snark Knight, who asks, Hey guys, the upcoming meeting with Walder Frey reminded me of this question. As we approach the end of this book, what are your most notable pieces of early installment weirdness found in the series, and do you think this qualifies? House Frey's massive army of 4,000 men, and 20 good ones, seems leagues above the older, more established river lords. Yeah, even as someone who's not particularly attuned to the military side of things in A Song of Ice and Fire, at least not compared to my illustrious co-host, even I noticed this. Like, the Freys have a lot of soldiers for a lesser house, even a rich, notable lesser house. By the time you get to feast and dance, they still have enough resources to send out two, at least two massive armies to the north under Hostine and Anus yep. to join Roose Bolton and to River Run under Emin Frey and Ryman Frey and all of Ryman's horrible sons to, <laughs> bes- to besiege River Run and, and, and give it over to Emin. There's another force at Derry. There's presumably another force still at the Twins. And this is after taking casualties in, you know, the Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps and the Western Campaign. Not enormous casualties, but I would imagine notable casualties. So... This does feel like a case to me of Martin needing the phrase to be stronger than they kind of should be in universe because he has so much for them to do. They are one of the more significant lesser houses. They're a significant heel house in terms of <laughs> how they affect the Stark and Tully campaigns. And he, as I said, he had longer plans for them in Feast and Dance. He has them as these kind of secondary villains in the North and the Riverlands who have to be dealt with before we can move to the the bigger players like Daenerys and the others. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's weird that the phrase are so strong. Now, I do think that Martin kind of retcons a little bit of that, and you have subordinate houses that swear to the phrase that you find out in A Storm of Swords. The Viprins is one that I remember off the top of my head, and a few others, a few other smaller houses. So they can their armies are probably joined up with Rob's army here in this chapter and with Walter Frey at the Twins. In terms of early installment weirdness that I personally find is kind of interesting or notable is I think like the the lack of Dorn in the first two books, especially where they're just always in the margins and you have a whole kingdom that is just utterly isolated from the rest of what's going on in A Song of Ice and Fire until Oberyn Martell shows up in King's Landing in A Storm of Swords. I also think that there's an early installment weirdness in the form of a specific Dornish house and that the Danes are seemingly become very 
seemingly in history are very prominent when you look back at the historical record, <laughs> historical record in quotation marks, George R. R. Martin's historical record in the world of ice and fire and fire and blood. But when you actually see them, see them in, a, in a song of ice and fire itself, they're not super strong. And that takes me to my final early sum of weirdness, and that is how weak House Valerian is in the main series. In that there's no real indication in Fire and Blood or the World of Ice and Fire why they just suddenly kind of fell off a cliff at some point after the Dornish invasion. I mean, was that was it that like dramatic that all of the swords from House Valerian died invading Dorne with Darren the First Targaryen? I guess that's possible. But really, and I've looked this up previously, I think there's literally 10 references in all of the main books to House Valerian. But when you read The World of Ice and Fire, and especially Fire and Blood Volume 1, and see how intertwined House Valerian is with House Targaryen and with the goings on in Westeros itself, you're like, what the fuck happened? Like, I almost feel like I need a whole novel or novella to explain the fall of House Valerian in the series. And so that feels it's, – it's more of like a late installment weirdness as opposed to an early installment weirdness because – you can expect that a subordinate house in the Narrow Sea probably wouldn't be all that powerful, but then they're suddenly very, very powerful in, in Fire and Blood in the World of Ice and Fire. Agreed. And you can make the case for why Martin made these decisions. The Valerians are useful in the backstory as this kind of secondary Targaryen house that can be involved in all the drama. <laughs> secondary Valerian house, I should say. But in the main branch of the story, you need him to be weak because Stannis needs to be weak at the start of the story for a variety of reasons. And you can point out that, you know, he needs to keep the Martells off, off stage for a while so their eventual reveal works. But a lot of that does feel retcon that Duran Martell is quiet in the first two books because he has his master plan. I'm sure Martin didn't have that perfectly outlined when he started writing the series. So yeah, a lot of these houses on the fringe, the Danes, the High Towers, I would add to that list, do feel more prominent in the backstory than they are in the main story. And some of that is, is part of just how the writing process changed. As many people have said before, including uh, Chloe over at Girls Gone Canon, the Danes were probably supposed to be a much larger part of the story before the five-year gap was abandoned. And I think you can see that strongly in, in the difference between the first three books and then four and five. So yeah, it's interesting to note these, these little bits as we go through the first book, as we've said before, where branches that withered or went in different directions stand out strongly in reread. Absolutely. So great questions, Sir Snark Knight. We always appreciate your questions, sir. You've been featured a couple times previously, and we hope to see more of your questions down the road. And for those of you who are interested in asking us questions on our podcast, Emmett had mentioned our Patreon before, but again, that's at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIF. And for all $10 above patrons, you have the ability to ask us questions that we will be forced at sword point to answer every single episode of the Notacast. So thank you, Sir Snark Knight, for the question. And if you want to ask us questions join our patron. This knot of Northern River King's Landing chapters are fun, 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 and I'm almost sad to visit the wall next week. Almost. But for now, here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Catelyn 9. And we are back with the much beloved Catelyn Stark, and boy, oh boy, are we getting into the plot territory that is going to extend its plot significance all the way to the final pages of A Dance of Dragons and on into the Winds of Winter. So, Catelyn Stark's fears grow as Rob Stark leads his northern army down the causeway towards the Riverlands. She fears for her kind of a dick, but actually a total dick father, Hostertelli, and her brother, Edmure, who coincidentally to Catelyn has only done one thing wrong in his entire life. Then there's Ned and her daughters, but she has to focus on Rob now, saving her strength for him. And through everything, Catelyn keeps her fears hidden behind a stern face. She bears the last name of Stark, after all. You must be as fierce and as hard as the North, Catelyn Tully. You must be a Stark for true now like your son. Rob continues exemplifying excellent leadership on and off the march south. As I said before, he's at the very head of the army column, but he's also taking meals with each and every lord in turn. Catelyn thinks he's learned much from Ned, and suddenly I'm sad for Ned and Rob, and well, Catelyn too. Ahead of the army it gets south, though, my namesake Sir Brendan Tully screens the Stark movement south with one with 100 picked horsemen, and the scouts report that Tywin was a many days ride to the south. The other news that these scouts brought back was pretty bleak. Walter Frey had called his banners and had nearly 4,000 men assembled at the Twins, but he hadn't done a damn thing with those men. Late again, Catelyn muses, but Rob is perplexed. Lord Frey cannot hope to fight the Lannisters by himself. Surely he means to join his power with ours. Well, perhaps, Rob, but Catelyn isn't so sure. Expect nothing of Walter Frey and you will never be surprised. And Walter ain't exactly known for being especially friendly with kind of a dick, but actually a total dick, Hoster Tully. And he had marriage ties to the Lannisters, as his son had wed Tywin's sister, Jenna Lannister. But still, Catelyn thinks that Waterfrey isn't really sure what he's going to do with all of those men. 
That night, they set up camp along the south edge of the bogs of the causeway, and Theon Greyjoy comes back in and reports that Brynden, First Blood Blackfish, eliminated a dozen Lannister scouts, and Sir Adam Marbrand is pulling the rest of his forces back, burning as he goes. Lannister fucking Tony that Sir Adam is. P.S. I'm sure Brendan killing those scouts and Adam Marbrand running away will have no future impact on the plot whatsoever. None at all. But Catelyn isn't quite so sure as I am. She's probably never read these books before. Gosh, what an idiot. She thinks that Lord Frey might tell Tywin of the movements, and she instructs Theon to bring down any and all birds she sees coming out of the twins. But not to worry on that count, Catelyn. Beefish has already given out the same orders. She ought to have known that Brendan Blackfish would be well ahead of her. Catelyn asks what's going on up ahead the twins, and Theon reports that Waterfrey himself has strung up some Lannister scouts while keeping most of his army close to the twins. And while Rob is reassured of this news, Catelyn is less so. Defending his own lands is one thing. Open battle against Tywin Lannister is another. Rob asks Theon if Brynden has found some way across the Green Fork other than the twins, and it's a solid note from Theon. I must have that crossing, Rob thunders. He then tries his best, well, maybe we'll build a lot of boats and cross that way, but... Even Rob knows that's silly. They need the twins and they can't take those castles by force either, Theon. Yeah, I heard you. You're an idiot. Rob glanced from her to Greyjoy searching for an answer and finding none. What would my lord father do? Find a way across. Whatever it took, Catelyn tells Rob. The next day, Brendan Tully himself arrives and he's got even grimmer news. Jamie has crushed the lords of the Trident in battle under the walls of River Run. Most of the river lords are running the hell away and Edmure Tully was wounded and taken prisoner by Jamie. The only, and it's really the only silver line to this blackest of clouds, is that Lord Titus Blackwood, him of the many-feathered cloak, was able to fall back into the castle of Riverrun. We must get across this accursed river forever, going to have any hope of relieving them in time, Rob declares. He's doing a lot of declaring and thundering in this chapter, I have to say. Well, that ain't going to be easy, Rob. Walter Frey now has his army inside of the castle walls, and he's barred his gates to crossage. Rob, in similar fashion to Father Ned from the last chapter, starts to damn everyone, but especially Walter Frey, declaring that he'll storm the walls and bring them down on the top of Walter Frey. But Catelyn puts her mom pants on and gets to work. You sound like a sulky boy, Rob. A child sees an obstacle and his first thought is to run around it or knock it down. A lord must learn that sometimes words can accomplish what swords cannot. Rob gets all red, well, redder than usual, but instead of pouting, he asks what Catelyn means, which gotta hand it to you, Rob. That's mature at any age when your mom's sick burns you like that. Catelyn answers Rob's question by calling him to look at how the Freys do business. They've held the crossing for 600 years, collecting tolls, and so Walter is just playing to form. Lord Frey will want his toll, and if Rob doesn't pay it, well, shit, go home already or get ready to meet Tywin Lannister's army head on marching north. Rob considers, and Catelyn prays that Ned taught Rob wisdom in addition to valor. And, Catelyn, your prayers will finally, and perhaps the only time, be answered here. Around noon, the Northern Vanguard catches sight of the twins, and it's a sight to behold. An ugly sight. Two castles and a bridge span the Green Fork, and from the walls there were arrow slits, murder holes, and portcullises. The bridge had taken three generations to complete, and then because the phrase are, and this will be very controversial in this fandom, but big old jerks, they put timber keeps on either side to ensure that people paid their passage going to and going across the bridge from either direction. The timber had later been rebuilt as stone, and what did the castles look like now? Well, in some contrast to Game of Thrones Season 1, which had the twins as pristine, beautiful castles, they don't look that way here. The twins. Two squat, ugly, formidable castles, identical in every respect, with the bridge arching between. High curtain walls, deep moats, and heavy oak and iron gates protected the approaches. The bridge footings rose from within the stout inner keeps. There was a barbican and porcullis on either bank, and the water tower defended the span itself. Now, despite how ugly these castles are, Catelyn doesn't think that they could be taken easily or in time to save River Run. The Northern Lords seem to agree as the Great John curses at the castle while Rickard Carsar glowers at the castle, Roose Bolton says the castle cannot be assaulted, and Helmut Tallhart mutters about how siege would also be impossible given the time constraints that they're operating under. But just then, the drawbridge lowers and Frey knights come riding forward. At the head of the column is Sir Steverin Frey who I want to call Sir Steve from here on out, Sir Steve Frey, Walter Frey's oldest son. is, And so Sir Steve, is he a young man in his prime, ready to take reins of the power from his father, Walter? No, he's over the age of 60 with sons and grandsons of his own. According to Catelyn, he looks like a tired old weasel. Love it, Catelyn, but at least he's polite. 
My lord father has sent me to greet you and inquire as to who leads this mighty host. Rob spurs his horse forward saying, it's a me, a Robostarchio. Well, Steve is kind of amused by Rob, the boy leading the army, and he invites Rob to the twins so that he can, um, you know, Rob, maybe you can explain your purpose in being here. Well, people start yelling at Rob not to do that. Don't do it, man. Roosbolton, in a hilarious ironic turn, even puts in that he shouldn't trust Walter Frey. And if Rob goes in alone, Walter Frey will sell him to the Lannisters, throw him into a dungeon, or slit Rob's throat. Or, you know, maybe put a sword through Rob's fucking heart, Roos. I see you, bro. I see you. Well, Catelyn hears all the commotion, and she comes up with a better idea on the spot because she's smart and has only done one thing wrong in her entire life. I will take the ring to more. Ah, fuck. Did it again. Wrong series. I will go. Rob is startled and asks if Catelyn is certain. She lies and says she's very certain. Besides, Waterfrey had known her since she was a girl, and he would never hurt her unless he saw some profit in it, right? <laughs> oh my god. Oh no. Well, Sir Steve agrees to the terms, and he leaves behind Sir Perwin as a return, quote, honored guest. But now Catelyn is off. But before she gets too far, Rob tells Steve not to be too long. He doesn't have any time. On the way of the twins, Catelyn thinks about how kind of a dick, but actually a whole dick, Hostertelli had once talked about how Walter Frey could field an army from his dick. And as she enters and sees all the sons, grandsons, bastards, grand bastards, daughters, granddaughter bastards, what all those bastard grand whatever things, she knows why that is. But up ahead, Walter Frey himself is being carried in splendor into the audience hall aboard a uh, litter. Not so splendid. Lord Walter was 90, a wizened pink weasel. Love it. With a bald spotted head, too gouty to stand unassisted. His newest wife, a pale, frail girl of 16 years, walked beside his litter when they carried him in. She was the eighth Lady Frey. Catelyn tries her best. It's so good to see you again, Lord Frey routine. But Walter only squints at her, all suspicion and doubt, that she really gives a damn about him. Why are you here? And why isn't Rob here? Catelyn observes that Walter is worse now than ever, and she needs to be very careful with how she proceeds. But before all that, we get some nice fun banner of Sir Steve and one of Walter's bastards saying, Now, Dad, be nice. And Walter Frey responding with, Shut the fuck up, Steve. And I fucked your mom when she was milking goats, bastard. Happy family relationships here at House Frey and the twins. Wow. Wow. Walter then demands to be lifted up into his chair and his timid wife, the villain Joyous Aaronford, timidly follows him up. She's actually not a villain. It's just some shtick here. Walter beckons Cat forward and she comes. He kisses her hand, tells her the courtesy has been observed, and let's get down to business. Why are you here? Catelyn is here to tell Walter to open his gates as Rob and his army need to cross. Going to River Run, are we? Cat Walter asks. Yes. P.S. Why aren't you there, you fucking dirtbag? Well, according to Walter, he's just following orders like a good German. He's called his banners and they're all here at the twins now. He asks his son, Jared, him of the, quote, Jared of House Frey, I name you liar fame from A Dance of Dragons, Davos 3, chef's kiss, to validate his claim and Jared complies, probably lying as befits his character and characterization. But now Walter Frey is reluctant to send his boys to River Run. Jamie's defeated the River Lords and he'd only be sending his men to die. No thanks. Well, Catelyn wants to throw Walter into a fire and burn him till he's dead, but she bites her tongue and talks about that's exactly why we need to cross. And by the way, Walter, can we talk in private? We're talking now, Walter says. But then he dismisses everyone from the audience hall, talking about how Catelyn probably wants to fuck or some shit. Like, that's a big old wow for me, Walter. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now alone with Catelyn, Walter talks about how all his sons just want him to die. Catelyn strokes his ego, tells him he should live to be a hundred. Well, that does stroke Walter's ego. Now tell Big Daddy Walter why you're here, Catelyn, you minx. They need to cross. Okay, well, you said that. And why would Walter allow that? Catelyn's anger flares. If you were strong enough to climb your own battlements, Lord Frey, you would see that my son has 20,000 men outside your walls. Walter's not impressed. They're all just going to fucking die when time arrives. Plus, Ned is in prison. Hoster is dying. Jamie is Edward's prisoner. What exactly are you offering, Catelyn? And besides, that son of yours... I'll match you son for son, and I'll still have 18 when yours are all dead. Excellent job doing math, Walter. Bravo. Well, Catelyn tries that old you swore ho you swore O's to hostage routine, which worked out well at the end of the crossroads, but Walter ain't like those guys there. Besides, he swore O's to the crown, too. That makes you and your son rebels. Walter should help Tywin Lannister instead. More of a sure thing, if we're being honest. Well, then why not help Tywin, then? Catelyn responds. Ah, yes. Well, as for that, you might be sensing Walter's a bit of a prideful sort. But Tywin, that motherfucker is arrogant. Know what I'm saying? And what's he got to be arrogant for? 
he's only got two sons and one of them's a freaking cripple deformed monster, right? Ha! Ah, bros, up top. Waters, so if Tywin wants Waters help, he can damn well ask for it. So Catelyn asks for Walter's help on behalf of Rob, Edmure, and Hoster, but Walter's not done pontificating. Don't patronize me, lady. I got a wife that does me for me. And besides, your dad never came to my latest wedding or even the one before that. And he calls me, me, the late Lord Frey. How insulting, yet true. Worse still, he wouldn't even marry Edmure to one of my daughters. And don't let Walter get started on Lysa, Catelyn's sister. Water had gone all the way to King's Landing a year back to watch his younger sons joust an attorney and watched all of them get knocked from their horses. And his third wife was a slut. And oh, where was I? Oh, yes, your shishta. Well, Walter wanted to foster two of his grandsons in King's Landing, and he would take Sweet Robin to foster. And those grandsons, what were their names again? Uh, who cares? But when Walter proposed fostering Sweet Robin and the twins, John Aaron had refused. And it was all Lysa's fault. She was all thinking that Walter would mistreat the boy, which, my God, to think Walter mistreating someone? No way. No way. Shocking accusation on Lysa's part. Besides, John Aaron had told Walter Frey, in Lysa's presence, mind you, and that's huge, that he planned to foster Sweet Robin on Dragonstone with Stannis. Exclamation point. We will talk about that. Oh, well, Catelyn wasn't tracking of that. She thought that Sweet Robin was going to Casterly Rock. Nope. Walter says, not Casterly Rock. Dragonstone and Stannis. Da okay, I gotta stop doing that. But on that note about Stannis and Tywin, they're such buttholes, am I right? Uh, no, you're not right, Walter. Well, Tywin, sure. Catelyn asks again who was supposed to foster Sweet Robin. You sure it was Stannis? Yes, 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 Walter is sure. But let's get back to business. You say you want to cross the river, Walter asks. We do, Catelyn responds. Well, you can't, Walter announces crisply. Not unless I allow it. And why should I? The Tullys and the Starks have never been friends of mine. He pushed himself back in his chair and crossed his arms, smirking, waiting for her answer. The rest was only haggling. At sunset, Catelyn Stark returns to Rob's camp with an honor guard. Sir Jared the liar, Hosting the dumbass, Danwell the looter, and Ronald Rivers, who has a very short wiki of ice and fire entry. Rob rides out to meet her and Catelyn reports the good news. Lord Walter will grant you your crossing. His swords are yours as well. Great news, Mom. Thanks for doing for that, me, Rob kind of says. Let's get moot. Well, before that, Walter's got some terms. Two of Walter's grandsons will go north to Winterfell to be wards. Okay. Fine. No no fucking big deal on that one. Additionally, Oliver will become your squire. Okay, fine again. He'll need a knighthood. Okay. And Arya will wed Elmar, nicknamed the Fud Frey as well. Well, Arya ain't going to like that much, Arya, Rob says. She probably won't, but there's one other very, very small matter to Rob. You need to marry a Frey too. Good news is that you get the pick of the litter. Well, Rob does his best not to flinch or wince. I see. Do you consent, Catelyn asks? Can I refuse? Not if you wish to cross. <sighs> I consent, Rob says solemnly. And now Rob doesn't seem like Rob the boy to Catelyn. Boys play with swords, but men made marriage packs. Yes, they do, Catelyn. Say, we should ask your dad about that someday, huh? The army crosses the twins at Evenfall, and I love, love, love this image. The double column wound its way through the gate of the eastern twin like a great steel snake slithering across the courtyard. Catelyn rides at the, quote, head of the serpent with Rob, the Blackfish, and Sir Steve. It takes hours to cross the bridge, but even as they cross, Catelyn catches sight of Walter Frey and is literally looking down at the army at the crossing. But not all of the army was crossing the bridge, though. On the eastern bank of the Green Fork, Roose Bolton was leading the Stark foot directly south to meet Tywin Lannister. For good or ill, Alia Ayakta Est. And that is A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 9. You know, I can blab about all the intricate politics of this chapter, the history of the Riverlands, which keeps expanding out, which is really, really cool. The grievances of House Frey or the tenuous Tully-Frey relationship, or even how we get the motivations for Lysa killing John Aaron right in this chapter. But no, this chapter is hilarious. I mean, it's hard to write a synopsis of this chapter without wanting to quote the entire Catelyn Water dialogue because it's, it's good comedy, man. It's really, really good comedy. It's only, of course... Just slightly undercut by the fact that Waterford will murder the shit out of everyone two books on from now. Exactly. That's what really what makes this chapter so special on, on reread. In isolation, your first time through A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 9 is a comedy, especially given the context of Eddard 15 last week and John 8 next week, both of which are extremely heavy and where there are dramatic Shakespearean themes proudly on the surface. 
Catalan 9, again, on first read, is about an irascible old asshole who has to just be coddled into doing the right thing. So thankfully, Catalan's there to save the day with a sigh and a rolled eye or two. Right. Like, look at the transition from Lord Walder outright refusing to let Rob's army cross his bridge and staring Catalan down smugly to the rest was only haggling. That's funny. That's a comedy cut. That's right. designed to make you not take Walder Frey especially seriously. You don't like him, certainly. He's clearly a conniving coward who treats his family like crap for the most part. And you can see that on first read. But he doesn't come off like a supervillain. No. He doesn't come off like someone who's going to wipe out Rob and his entire army in the most devastating and widely discussed sequence in the story, book or show. That's in part what makes it feel like the rug's being pulled out from underneath you when he does do that. Yeah. And Martin sets up that head fake expertly in this chapter, even as the actual plot elements that will lead to the Red Wedding are being set up in plain sight. Yeah, and this is our real break from the pitch letter here, where originally Rob Stark was supposed to die in battle against Joffrey. Here, and you can have a different opinion, and people who are listening can have a different opinion too, but I think that this entire family, House Frey, the location of their castle, and Roose Bolton as well for that matter, were all set up and inserted into the storyline specifically to be Rob Stark's downfall here. So we start to see the shape of the Red Wedding taking place here. Just a surface level reading of Game of Thrones Catelyn 9 leads us as the reader to think that this guy's just a jerk. Like, just a regular old jerk. He's the kind of jerk you meet at the convenience store who shoes all the kid, all the children out of the way and yells at people and talks about the good old days back when segregation was around. You know, the, like the kind of regular old jerk. It's a great use of tropes. It's because as soon as you start reading Walter Frey's dialogue, you're like, oh, I know this character. I know this, this, this angry, annoying old man. He's just going to ruin Thanksgiving. But you don't realize right. he's going to ruin Thanksgiving by killing everybody. Right, right. And that's so much more clever than if Martin tried to make us like Walter Frey, because I don't think that would have worked at all. If he tried no. to make him likable as the way to set up the reveal. This is much more interesting. He lets us know that Walder Frey is a villain, but he misdirects us as to what kind of villain he is. And I think that's just genius and shows off a real command of his genre and the kind of the tropes that mm-hmm. go into his genre. At the same time, as you say, he has to still keep us in this moment where Rob is in trouble, where the, the stakes are against him and things might go wrong at any moment. So you have this gloomy tone with, as the chapter starts. The sense of just her shoulders being tense all the time and... I think it's an interesting little detail, just as a sidebar, that Martin always keeps our eyes off the neck. Like, yeah. multiple armies pass through the neck. Like, you know, Ned and Sansa and Arya pass through on their way to King's Landing. Catelyn and Rob pass through. Roose Bolton's army passes in the other direction to Dance with Dragons. But I wonder why Martin never wants us to show it. It can't be because there's a character there who knows the truth of Jon's parentage. <laughs> no, that can't possibly no. be why he's keeping Howland Reed in his back pocket. So that's a little detail I like. But to the point, Catelyn, as she notes, has plenty to fear right now. And not only about the characters we've met, not only about Rob and Ned and her family, also about Hoster and Edmure, who we haven't met yet, but she's actively worried about them. She lists her, her father's silence and her brother's imprisonment as these, these fears and these ghosts that are just, just eating away at her. And while she doesn't say it, I gotta think under the surface, Catalina's thinking about her disillusionment with Lysa. And yeah. how Lysa has fallen from grace and changed, and they don't have the relationship they used to. And so it's a sense that her family is falling apart from within as well as without. It's not just that they're up against enemies. It's that there's something wrong in the heart of House Tully and wrong in the heart of House Stark. And that just that's that's such a present nervous tension for her. And it's part of this deep exhaustion that sets into Catelyn over the rest of her story. Like there's this quote from the second chapter in The Clash of Kings that everyone points to as this really emotional moment. I want to weep, she thought. I want to be comforted. I'm so tired of being strong. I want to be foolish and frightened for once, just for a small while, that's all. A day, an hour, and it's so heartbreaking because she's asking for so little and even less by the end of that thought, just an hour. She yeah. wants to be Sansa again. She wants to be first book Sansa with all her cares and worries removed, and she can't. So this reflects not only what she's lost, but her, quote, apprehensions that the loss has only begun. That the dark wings are just going to keep on bearing dark words, as of course they will with the reports of Brandon Rickon's death and then Rob's death in A Storm of Swords. She has that, that great line right after Ed, Edmure's victory at the Fords when everything seems to be going right for House Stark and Tully, but it's right before Winterfell falls. She thinks to herself, but if we are winning, why am I so afraid? And I think that, that really sums up like the mood of Catalan's POV from here on in. I think it's a really excellent point. And I think one of the interesting aspects of it is that Martin sets Catelyn's fears up to be, oh, they're just totally overblown, right? Because we know what happens in Catelyn 10. Rob Stark wins against Jamie Lancer. He takes Jamie prisoner. The, the gambit to bring Tywin's army north so he can't go and reinforce Tywin or can't go and reinforce Jamie up at River Run works. We know 
that all of these things work out in this chapter, but that overall sense of doom and that overall sense of depression starts here and progresses forward. And Martin isn't being like, oh, she's just some scared old woman or whatnot. He reinforces the fact that all of these terrible things are actually happening, that her sense of doom is legitimate and her sense of foreboding is something that plays out in the narrative itself. So yes, Rob Stark wins at the Battle of Whispering Wood. Tywin Lannister is never able to reinforce Jaime. Jaime is taken prisoner. But Ned Stark, he's executed in just a few chapters here. What happens at the Bad Winterfell, like you said? Bran and Rickon are, quote unquote, killed by, quote unquote, the young Greyjoy. <laughs> and that's so her sense of doom and foreboding is not wrong. And she's also not an old, she's not a new hand at this. She's an old hand at all of these fears. She was, she had married Ned Stark. She had married Ned Stark right at the beginning of, right before the Battle of the Trident. She had witnessed all of these wars that had progressed forward. She had, so she was a witness to a lot of things. She's not, these are not unfounded fears. These are realistic fears. And I think one of the great aspects of having Catelyn as a point of view is that you have a veteran mentor figure who is constantly being rejected for her fears, but who is ultimately proved right over and over and over again in what she is seeing in what's going on in the state of Westeros and the state of House Stark and in the and the state of House Tully. It's this great sense of tragedy and the sense of defeat inside victory. Because, yeah, you brought up Robert's Rebellion and they won the war, but Brandon was dead. She yeah. got a, a, a sweet love with Ned, but there was always that shadow of Jon Snow and his mother hanging over their relationship. So Catelyn's bringing those, that same fear and that same mindset here. And as you say, Rob's going to have this grand victory at Whispering Wood and, and the Battle of the Camps and, and the Gambit at the Green Fork Works, but Coming back, when we reread, we notice, oh, the Karstark sons die. That has a huge right. impact later on in the story and a bad one for Rob. Oh, Lord Hornwood and his son are both dead. That's going to cause huge problems in the north and mm -hmm. Clash of Kings, and that will allow Ramsay to rise to power. So the seeds of defeat are being sown even in the midst of apparent victory. And right. Catelyn is the perfect POV for that because that's how her mind kind of works. Yeah. Because like holding on to this desperate optimism, but the, the negative thoughts are creeping up. That is exactly what happens in the plot. As you say, she's proven dreadfully right. But all she can do, as she says, in this moment is invest everything in Rob yes. because he's the one who's here. He's the one she can help. He's Ned's son, but he has those Tully colors. He's the blackfish at his side. He's kind of this ultimate Stark-Tully union. So if, if he succeeds, then both of her families are okay. I think that's kind of how Catelyn is thinking about this in this desperate moment. And as such, as you say, she plays this distinct mentor role in this chapter. She's the realist who is, is trying to keep him grounded and focused. He's learned so much from Ned, she thought as she watched him, but has he learned enough? Did you teach him wisdom as well as valor? Did you teach him how to kneel? So as for the young wolf himself, we get this dynamic, as we've been talking about, of Rob the Lord versus Rob the boy. The two faces he's wearing at this transitional moment in his life and, and leadership. And I like that we see him continuing to mature as a leader, following on Brand 6 and Catelyn 8, but he doesn't unrealistically grow up 100% overnight. Yeah, that's true. He's handling his bannermen well. I love the moment when he's not only listening to each one of them in turn, but he's specifically weighing their words against each other. He's trying to determine who's offering him useful intelligence and who's just ass kissing or straight up lying to him. <laughs> and that's important because you need to know who you can rely on when it comes to quick military decisions and, and, and difficult agonizing political decisions, as Rob will do plenty of over the next couple of books. He needs to know who he can trust. And that's a perfect way to set up dealing with the most truculent and least loyal and least trustworthy <laughs> vassal of them all, Walder Frey. So you get the, this great pattern in the first half of the chapter in which Rob and Cat and the army get closer and closer to the twins. They get more and more information, as you were saying, as the scouts report back, and we get the other half of the, the scout game going on that we saw in Tyrion 7 with Tywin's army. And we have this dynamic between Cat and Rob plays out in response to that information. Theon acts as the cocky counterpoint to Cat's pessimism, always urging Rob on, and Rob is raging kind of immaturely about the need for a crossing, and Theon wants him to tear the twins down around Walder's wrinkly head. <laughs> But Catelyn, and, you know, Catelyn always filters it through the emotion, of course, of Rob being her firstborn son and wanting to take care of him. But as you say, he responds to it well, and she's able to make them focus on the question that Rob can actually act upon, politically and right. diplomatically. What does he want? What is Walter Frank trying to get out of this, and can we make that happen? Right. And it's it's always not amusing to me, but it's entertaining to get that perspective of Catelyn's wise words being constantly being thrown back. Oh, we'll just bring the twins down on top of them. But... It's really, really good that Catelyn's there like, no, that's not going to work. And you have all of these instances where Theon and Rob are like, well, we'll build 
we'll build boats. We'll we'll storm the twins. We'll we'll take it under siege. But then she's like, you can't do that. Like you have to stop thinking like a soldier, like a kid who wants to kick over a castle and instead focus on being a man and a person who is able to utilize the instruments of war that are at your disposal, as well as utilize the instruments of policy, of politics, of diplomacy. And that's so important for Rob because that's what wins Rob all of his victories. So I'm going on a limb here. I'm saying that Catelyn Stark is 100% responsible for Rob's victorious campaign initial campaign in the Riverlands and on into the Riverlands and on into the Westerlands. Nothing controversial about that whatsoever, sir. None. But yeah, it's because it's not just personal. All this debate is centered on the thorny question of loyalty in a civil war. Yeah. The, the fact that power doesn't work as simply as Rob is trying to insist that it does gets at how difficult that question is. Just as Rob and his bannermen will be caught between King Joffrey and King Renly at book's end before the Great John, of course, cuts the Gordian knot by <laughs> crowning Rob instead... The phrase introduced this question of what side Westeros is going to take as the war breaks out in full, and it's not always obvious. That's especially pressing because Walder is notoriously disloyal, sticking up for no one but himself and his interpretation of what's good for his family. And Catelyn very astutely points out this gray area when it comes to the question of Frey's killing Lannister scouts. Rob is encouraged by that. He's like, oh, they're fighting Lannisters. Maybe that means they're on our side. And she points out, you know, defending your lands from scouts is not the same as outright war. There's some gray right. areas here. It's not as simple as striding up and demanding loyalty or we're going to burn down his castle. And so the phrase allow Martin to get at the great questions of how power works and what power even is, as with Varus's riddle in Book 2 of the Tyrion. Just look at their bridge and how they use it, the history of how they rose from it. Like This is political and economic power stripped down to its quantum core. Hmm. Like You talked before about how complex the power of the, the Starks is, where it comes from politically, emotionally, how they're seen as nurturing with the winter town, but you know, call, come down harshly like Rob with the dire wolf against the Great John. But the phrase, man, they just strip it right down. You need to cross? Fuck you. Pay me. <laughs> and all the nobility, all the armaments, all the sigils that they have flow from that basic power dynamic. There's that line Catelyn says, the timber giving way to stone. That perfectly captures up how the phrase have, have risen up from nothing. And that's how they've done it. And it's also a funny note, too, that it took them three generations to build the bridge and then the, the keeps across either, either side of the span. For the sole purpose of screwing people over. Like they their entire purpose is generational to fuck everybody over. <laughs> like, Perfectly said. It, like think about it, three generations, what, fifty years? Fifty years. So they had this long so their their entire vision is based around screwing people over. And Rob has to negotiate that vision historically that has been Divine House Frey on down to its current Lord Walter Frey, who as a point of interest for you folks who are interested in this sort of things, makes his first appearance, not in a Game of Thrones, actually, but chronologically in The Mystery Knight from Dunkin' Egg. And he's even a little snot there, too. He's the most consistent character in the entire series right. that way. It's great. And that power dynamic we're talking about is so simple, it can literally be reduced to a children's game, as we will see in Bran's early chapters in The Clash of Kings, when the young Walders arrive at Winterfell and they break the free dynamic down to this game, Lord of the Crossing, which they defend themselves on a stream and you can lie, kind of, but then someone gets knocked into the river. And it's like, that's how the phrase look at it. Like when Walder talks about, I have 21 sons, 21 minus 3 equals 18, so I win. <laughs> it's the most childish way of looking at power possible, but it's worked for them. So of course right. they've stuck with it. And that's what I like about the phrase. Like Lord Walder obviously is one note in terms of dialogue. He's got one trick he plays in terms of his presence in the scene. He's, he's such a grumbling, aggrieved ass at every opportunity that he makes Stannis look positively personable by comparison. <laughs> but he's actually fairly complicated as a politician. As Catelyn points out, even he doesn't necessarily know what he's going to do here because he has, and I love this quote, an old man's caution and a young man's ambition. That yeah, that's awesome. On the one hand, you see Walder infamously holding back during Robert's Rebellion and getting the late Lord Frey reputation. And he, he does the same thing here. He did not run off to join Edmure. On the other, though, if you press his levers just right... He'll commit to you hard. Yeah. He'll go all in. He'll go after every office and every association with you that he can. Why is that? It's because even though Lord Walder smolders with resentment against the great houses and how they look down on him and his family and his bridge, he knows that if the Freys are ever going to be the next Red Wines, if they're ever going to be the next lesser house to be this major continental power in their own right, he needs a great house as his patron and benefactor. He's got to serve someone, so he has to bow and scrape, even though it just makes him angrier against these great houses above him. And the Tullys, as he says, have never been willing to play that role for him, despite his many attempts. But maybe the Starks will, and if they won't, well, there's always the Lannisters. Yes, the Lannisters. Yes, you can always reach out to Lannisters, or the Lannisters will reach out to you one way or the other. But yeah, that's absolutely true, and that water is complex. 
His motivations are very basic, but the way that he presses his claims and he advances his grievances, so to speak, or gets them addressed is is good. Not good. That's the wrong word. It's smart, I think. And a lot of people have played Crusader Kings 2, and they played the, the Song of Ice and Fire mod- modification for the game, have all said that they start the game thinking that they're going to be House Stark, building alliances and working their way through and doing the noble thing. But by the end, they're all turning out to be water fray, trying to marry their children off to the various major houses and building themselves up that way. And what's interesting about Walter Frey is how transactional, like the way that he's looking at politics are, is. He's not basing it on things like loyalty, just cause, on things that you would be like, you kind of want to aspire to. You're like, oh, the Starks are great. They've built years and years and generations of relationships, all for the common purpose of banding together for when winter arrives in the form of either winter itself or the others. And they have built various marriage alliances and boosted these houses up. They brought the Manderleys in. That's not House Frey's perspective at all. Their perspective is entirely like you said, fuck you, pay me. And it's not just fuck you, pay me for crossing the bridge in terms of money. It could be things like marriages too. For sure. I love that contrast of wanting to be the Starks, but ending up as the phrase. I think that's that captures so much about what Martin wants to use the phrase for in terms of expressing the politics of Westeros, that this is kind of what you descend to. This is what you end up being. This is what power is when you break it down to its nasty, grubby, selfish mm-hmm. little core. I mean, the phrase are just remorseless in squeezing every drop of an advantage out of an alliance. You see that with the Starks and then again with the Lannisters. <laughs> they are they are greedy for lands and honors in a way that would make Cersei work. <laughs> she's putting all her people around Robert. Even she's not comprehensive as the phrase when the phrase find a new shark to be the remora too. I mean, the Lannisters always pay their debts, but the Freys always collect theirs. Oh, that's good. I like that a lot. That's awesome. Well, thank you, sir. Hence the title of this episode. Walder is the fairy tale troll crouching under the bridge, demanding payment before you're allowed to cross. And Rob reneges on the deal, so the debt is taken in blood. Mm. Even before the Red Wedding, though, it's, it's clear that the stakes are high and the politics are complicated. That's why Martin sets it up for so long in this chapter. The whole first half of this chapter is setting it up to let you know this is, hey, this is not just one random lore that Rob needs on his side. This is strategically important. This is politically important. This is going to matter. And I love that he then splits the duties between Catelyn and Rob, with the former acting as ambassador while the final decision over whether to agree to Walder's terms remains with the latter. I like that. It plays to their strengths, in-universe, but also as characters. It allows them space to both act in a realistic fashion. No one is sidelined, but no one feels forced. Neither Catelyn or Rob feels like they're just being shoved into the scene because they have to be there. Right. Yeah, that's 100% true. I mean, they, they both occupy their own distinct spheres of influence in this in this chapter. And I think it's interesting that Catelyn is occupying the diplomatic role, which is a role that we're going to see her occupying in later portions as well, especially with, in terms of her, her attempted diplomatic overture to Renly Baratheon and A Clash of Kings and on from there. And I think, again, as we talked about in Catelyn 8, Catelyn is kind of superseding some of the norms that have been established for Westerosi women at this point in the story. We're talking about a very patriarchal culture in Westeros, her father being perhaps one of the greatest or worst, depending on your perspective. It's the worst practitioners of that patriarchal culture. But he has set Catelyn up to have advantages that most women in the society don't have. So Catelyn occupying the role of the diplomat to Walter Frey works really, really well. And she's been set up both in her education as well as her tutelage under Hoster Tully and her relationship with Ned Stark as well in order to be this person who can interact with the character as a raspable and as awful as Walter Frey. And I love how she becomes the ambassador through developing her political smarts. She doesn't just seize the position because she wants it. Rob doesn't right. point her. She realizes that the squabbling among the Northern Lords about whether Rob should go to the twins is really pissing off Sir Steve. He doesn't want <laughs> he doesn't want to hear all this this nasty gossip about his father and his family about how they can't be trusted. So Catelyn becomes the emissary because so she can cut off that discussion and quickly move on. So she demonstrates that she should be the emissary. She should be that ambassador because look how smart a move that was and look how well she was reading the room, just like she yep. read the room at the end of the crossroads. And so Catelyn enters the room where she will be brutally murdered along with mm. her son and Hell his bannerman, two books from now, determined to make the most of it. And part of what I was really thinking about when I was rereading this chapter is that a huge part of why the Red Wedding hit so hard is that it's seen through the eyes of someone who really believed with all her heart that Guest Right would keep mm. her son safe. And not because she's, you know, a naive child, but because she sincerely believes that feudalism's overlapping productions will produce good outcomes. She believes in the social contract. She believes in the responsibilities of her class. 
She's not nihilistic or greedy about power structures. She sincerely thinks she they work. And of course, she knows that Walters is far more cynical, you know, with his humorously blunt conception of politics, as, as we were talking <laughs> about. But, you know, Walter Frey's take is not entirely inaccurate. Like when he talks about just comparing sons with Tywin and I'll have 19 and a half when all of his are gone. <laughs> it definitely does wear on Tywin. He doesn't have the proper perfect Lannister heir and that Tyrion, the one available, doesn't fit his image. So Walter Frey is not wrong about these kind of basic drives that guide the, the greater houses. I think that's part of his anger against houses like the, the Lannisters or the Baratheons or the Tullys when he says they're all puffed up bungholes. I think they're too noble to shit. It's like you guys are driven by the same impulses as me at the end of the day. Why do you think you're so much better than me? And it's hard to say he's wrong when you look at someone like Tywin. Like Tywin talks a fancier game than Walter Frey, but are his motivations really that much more lofty or dramatic? No. They're really not. They're kind of the same person. That's why they get along so well. Right? That's, why they, that's why they're such natural conspirators, because as soon as Tywin hears about the Rob breaking the marriage pact, I'm sure he went, oh, that's going to piss Walter Frey off because it would have pissed me off. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very similar in the, in the transactional way that they exert power and the way that they build alliances. But even though Walter Frey is very transactional in his form of politics, it, he does he is a little bit different than the other river lords who are all around him in one very key aspect. He's just the most blatant liar in the universe, and you can see that when he pretends to Catelyn that he didn't he couldn't possibly get his soldiers to Admir in time to help him defend <laughs> Riverrun from Jamie, even though everyone got there, everyone else got there in plenty of time. And I love that line when he's sitting back smugly daring Catelyn to challenge his version of events, as she says, basically daring her to openly call him a liar when he obviously is one. <laughs> and as you said, the, the son he turns to to defend him is Jared Frey, the notorious liar, as Davos calls him out for pretending that Rob turned into a wolf and attacked his <laughs> bannerman at White Harbor. So basically, Walder is being set up as the perfect candidate to break through all of Catelyn's carefully nurtured beliefs but how the world should slash does work. He's the perfect character to give this give her this final horrible deconstructive fall that turns her into Stoneheart. On first read, though, of course, Walder's just a prick on every level. <laughs> he's rude to her. He's rude to his family. He's rude about bastardy. He's creepy as hell about his young new wife. And Catelyn's breakthrough comes from realizing that his rudeness is motivated by pride and that pride can be used in her favor. He gives her that opening when he says, if Lord Tywin wants my help, he can bloody well ask for it. That was all Catelyn needed to hear. I am asking for your help, my lord. She said humbly, and my father and my brother and my lord husband and my sons are asking with my voice. And Rob's breakthrough comes in backing up that voice. This is the first time he's, he's had to make a sacrifice as part of his campaign, and he does it without hesitation, which is great. And that ties into the things we were talking about in Catelyn 8 of the parallel of his personal maturation and Catelyn learning to deal with it. He had never seemed more manly to her than he did in that moment. Boys might play with swords, but it took a lord to make a marriage pact, knowing what it meant. And that's great, again, that image of boys might play with swords, as we said in Catalan 8, that is like the archetypal image of innocence in Catalan's mind for Rob. Rob just playing with wooden swords, crownless, that she kind of wants for him, but knows he can never get back. And so she, it's such a bittersweet moment for her, where she's, she's proud of him making this manly decision, but also sad that he's not the boy anymore. Now, the interesting thing about all of that, though, is that if Lord Tywin wants my help, he can bloody well ask for it. Lord Tywin is going to come calling on Walter Frey at some point between a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords. And when he does, and he asks for Walter Frey's hope, what's Walter Frey to do but not help Tywin Lannister, especially since he has this massive grievance, given the fact that Rob Stark has broken his marriage betrothal. And I think that takes us into our foreshadowing groundwork portion of this chapter. Beyond the Red Wedding, the major foreshadowing that leaks out of Catelyn 9 on reread is for Craster's Keep. Here as there, you have the grotesque patriarch squatting in his chair, squinting and sneering at everyone who passes through his transitory domain, callously using and discarding women. That being said, I think there are a couple of interesting differences we may be intended to notice. Craster sacrifices to the others, like Night's King, Walder crowds his sons around him like the Rat Cook. They're neighbors in the Nightfort's robes gallery, in other words, but not identical. More importantly, though, they have opposite fates as hosts in the Storm of Swords. Craster is killed by his guests in, in the mutiny there in Sam's second chapter. Lord Walder, of course, kills his guests at the Red Wedding. So you have these interesting echoes and mirrors and ripples where they're, they're very similar, but certain things certain things are opposites in interesting ways. But, you know, we do have to talk about the Red Wedding, right? We have to, Emmett. I guess so. All right. So we do have an interesting line here where you have Catelyn saying, Lord, Fra Lord Walder is my father's bannerman. I have known him since I was a girl. He would never offer me harm. And then she thinks, unless he saw some profit in it. And wouldn't you know it, but Lord Walderfrey is going to see some profit in harming Catelyn Stark and Rob Stark in A Storm of Swords via Tywin Lannister. Absolutely. And add to that Walder's comment that Lord Tywin can bloody well ask for his help if he wants it. 
And of course, Tywin will. After the Blackwater and Rob's wedding to Jane Westerling, Tywin will ask the phrase to join his new nascent alliance against the Starks, and Walder will, will happily join up. So while, of course, this chapter is basically a giant piece of foreshadowing for the Red Wedding on its own, and that's, of course, setting up the, the setting and characters will be crucial to it, there are some little very specific bits in the dialogue and internal monologue that stand out as, as Martin kind of setting the stage for this huge scene later on. On a later note, I believe this qualifies our first, as our first mention of Aunt Jenna, who is the best. <laughs> Catelyn brings her up as a, a sister of Tywin Lannister, who is married to one of, of Walder's infinite brood. I don't think Martin had Jenna in mind at the moment, but I'm sure he was just throwing that mention in there when he was writing it to, to set up a potential Frey Lannister connection and decided to develop it later on. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that connection does work to help us understand the complex nature of the Frey form of politics, if you want to call it that. But kind of transitioning away from this Red Wedding, Aunt Jenna, the Lannisters themselves, we do have to talk about the Aarons and specifically about the Who Killed John Aaron plot. And I, and I think George R. R. Martin does a really masterful job throughout this book, throughout A Game of Thrones, of spreading the clues in as to who actually killed John Aaron. And here we get the motive aspect of it. We've already gotten the means from Pycelle back in Eddard 6 and Eddard 8. The Tears of Lists was the, was the means that was used to kill John Aaron. But now we see why Lysa wanted to kill John Aaron and why she actually did it. It was because John Aaron was going to send Sweet Robin away to foster a Dragonstone. And it's interesting the way that Martin does it is that he kind of like inserts it in the dialogue. And Catelyn asks like Waterfrey to pause and like explain himself. And like, wait, no, that's not what I heard. I heard that he was supposed to go to he was supposed to go to Castle Rock. And he's like, no, no, he's going to Dragonstone. Don't you think I could tell Lord Tywin and Lord Sans part? But anyway, it's about this bridge thing that we were talking about here. Let's let's return back to form. So I think one of the fun things when doing this reread is looking at the ways that Martin sprinkles clues about different reveals that he has in mind throughout the narrative itself. And the who killed John Aaron plot is among my favorite mysteries in the story. And that kind of crushing moment where you find out that it's, it was actually Lysa at the behest of Littlefinger at the end of A Storm of Swords, it works really, really well because it has been set up. And we only know that this is a clue for why Lysa killed John Aaron after we read Lysa admitting that she killed John Aaron. It's in the middle of a scene that's about a dozen other things that are grasping for our attention and more urgent to the plot. But it's just the way Martin weaves in Lysa's motivations. And I think he does a great job. Obviously, he does a, a great job weaving in that kind of backstory and secondary character motivation into singing to something we spend a lot of time talking about and we'll spend a lot more time talking about. But I'm always impressed with it, with Lysa specifically. That there's yeah. all these little scenes, especially in book one, and then a little more when we get to book three and <laughs> Hoster's uh, Tansy reveal, where Martin seems like he's kind of just shouting to you what the truth is, but it's designed so you don't catch it on first read. And that about takes us to our final theory slash discussion section of this podcast. And the question that many fans, including us, have asked ourselves many, many multiple times, should Rob Stark have kept to the marriage vows that he makes to Walter Frey in this chapter? Well, Catelyn has that great thought she thinks to herself in A Storm of Swords after she learns that Rob has, has broken his marriage vow for the relatively weak house of the Westerling. She thinks, oh, why couldn't you have fallen to Marjorie Torella's arms instead? And I think that that sets up an interesting question of whether... Rob should have broken this marriage pact if the opportunity rose. On the one hand, of course, it's good for Rob to be seen keeping his word, even more than for your average powerful lord, because Rob is trying to set up a whole new polity, which more or less rests on his own honor and personal charisma and excellence, and that will require a lot of people trusting his word. Even his enemies, to a certain extent, when he sends that peace deal to Cersei in the Clash of Kings, he's asking for her trust. Right. Moreover, as, as John says in Season 7, there is this larger social decay that sets in when a society built on guest rights and honorable treatment starts to abandon all that. Obviously, that society never really lived up to those ideals, but when it starts openly shattering them, you start getting some intractable social problems. However, as Tyrion argues, there's still a question of when and how you take that stand. Breaking a marriage vow is bad, but it's it's generally not red wedding level bad. I mean, it annoys when people say that Rob got all his bannermen and soldiers killed, because there's no reasonable way he could have seen a response like this coming. When Prince Duncan broke his marriage vow, the Laughing Storm didn't respond by killing his bodyguard and his soldiers and his mother, shattering guest right in the process. And that's Lionel Baratheon. The Baratheons are not exactly known for their even-tempered responses. Right. Ours is the Fury. Barath is right in the name. But even he didn't go as far as Walder Frey. What, what I'm saying is Walder is fueled by an unusual amount of bad faith. And that's known even before the Red Wedding. So maybe that should have an impact on Rob's calculus. Maybe he shouldn't worry too much about keeping a deal with him. I mean, Machiavelli would argue that even an honest man must lie when dealing with a notorious liar like Walter Frey. Well, I doubt Martin would go that far. I do think he had Catelyn think wistfully of the Rob Marjorie match that could have been to let us know that, hey, that's a possibility and maybe it wouldn't have been the worst thing. 
And when we do finally get the reveal in A Storm of Swords that Rob Stark has married Jane Westerling, it's framed in such a way that it's completely understandable. We have Rob Stark feeling incredibly sad and crushed that he's that his two brothers have been killed by Theon Greyjoy at Winterfell. He's been wounded in battle. All of these things factor into Rob Stark's decision making. And of course, you have a pretty girl in the form of Jane Westerling who is offering, quote unquote, comfort to Rob as well. Now, in a perfect world, should Rob have kept his marriage proposal and vows with the phrase? Sure. Sure, but we're not living in a perfect world, and neither is Rob Stark, and neither for goddamn sure is Walter Frey. It's that question of how you hold on to your values in a world that doesn't always reflect them back, when it's smart to give them up, when it's not. And there's no easy answers for that, and I think you can see that even in how this lost storyline, so to speak, plays out. The reason the Rob and Marjorie match doesn't happen. And it's not just because Rob wedded and bedded poor Jane. And it's not just because Tyrion dispatched Littlefinger to offer Joffrey as Marjorie's next royal husband instead. Those definitely had an impact. But even if those things didn't happen, the Rob-Marjorie match after Renly's death probably wasn't in the works. And why is that? Because Catelyn was in Renly's tent when the Shadow Baby struck. And rather than stay to work out a deal with the Tyrells, she fled back to Riverrun. And why did she do that? It was partially out of sheer brain-scrambling terror at the sight of the Shadow Baby. She has nightmares about her will into a storm of swords. Yep. But it was also to save Brienne from paying for Renly's death, which she was clearly going to do if Catelyn didn't get her out of there. As such, Catelyn herself became a suspect in Renly's death, and the potential Stark-Tyrell marriage alliance, which could have smashed Tywin and Stannis both, withered on the vine. So that's that's a classic case of how mercy can screw up your political goals, that this, this, this act of saving an individual on Catelyn's part cut off this road for her <coughs> cut off this <coughs> cut off this path forward for a faction that could have been super helpful but it also works for the long-term benefit as these acts of mercy tend to do in the song of ice and fire because brienne's determination to protect catelyn's daughters is born from catelyn protecting her and sticking up for her in the same way that the northern vassals who are trying to get ned stark's children back home are doing so in large part because of how ned treated them yeah so even though rob may should have kind of woulda coulda shoulda kept his vows to kept his promise to Walter Frey in the end I I, I come to the conclusion that Walter Frey is someone not worth I I mean I I guess I kind of come to it the same way that you would come to Daenerys' decision to treat with the Astapori good masters right does she have an obligation to keep her faith with people like that with slavers does rob stark have an obligation to keep faith with walter frey who has a transactional understanding of politics who is the very embodiment who is the very embodiment of the worst types of patriarchal political and cultural manifestations in westeros i say no i think that in a perfect world it should be yes but in a perfect world it's no and that's fine because ultimately we do see that catelyn's work does pan out in having someone to protect Catelyn's daughters. We see that the Freys aren't ultimately going to win out, that their transactional form of politics is not is already crumbling around them with all of the Freys being hanged by Lady Stoneheart in the Riverlands and the rest of the Freys up in the north about to meet uh, the icy cold depths of the lake outside the Crofter's village. So what is is that the is that the ultimate moral message that Martin is communicating? I'm not entirely sure, but I would say that it speaks something to the fact that so many of the phrase are dying as a result of them way, way, way overreacting to Rob Stark marrying someone besides a member of House Frey. I think it's the distinction between short term and long term success, which is something we've talked a lot about before with regard not only to the phrase but also to the Lannisters, and I think you're going to see that all the more clearly when the phrase and Lannisters get in bed together. Mm-hmm. And I think that just about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Catalan 9. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks for listening so much. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Podbean. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ASOF. Follow us on social media at ASOF on Twitter and our email at ASOF at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars of Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. So, guys, if you haven't checked it out already, head on over to our Patreon or our Podbean to hear our episode on Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 1, aka Winterfell. Our episode on Episode 2 of Season 8 will be out on Tuesday the 23rd for patrons and Wednesday the 24th for everyone else. 
you can also join us next week for our next episode of the regular cast covering John 8, in which Maester Eamon reveals his backstory to John in order to inform the difficult decisions that John must make. And we will be joined to discuss all that by Kim Renfro, insider writer Yay! and Game of Thrones expert. We've been looking forward to this for a while. We're so pleased Kim is coming on the show. She does great writing about Game of Thrones. If you haven't read it already, go ahead and check her out at insider.com. And she's got a book coming out, The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones, a behind-the-scenes fan guide to the series, all about details about the relationship between the book series and, and the show, interesting little nuggets along the way from everything from music to casting. Just just a great, sprawling uh, wrap-up of the show that we've, we've lived with for so many years. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, so check it out. And we're, we're so looking forward to having Kim on the show. She's always done a great job writing about Game of Thrones, and she's just a, a real uh, fun beacon in the community. She really, really is. It's going to be so much fun talking about John 8 with her. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. And we will see you guys next week.